It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. outside your window is far from spectacular, sensational, or even amazing, but everything is super here on Post Show Recaps as we're talking all things Marvel Cinematic Universe, and here is a homecoming with a bit of a visitor. Yes, this is not the dulcet tones of Josh Wiggler. Mike Bloom here filling in for Josh Wiggler on Everything is Super. Josh has some personal matters to attend to, and I guess I am serving as the empty Iron Man suit that is showing up in his stead to uh, hopefully, you know, praise and not admonish the movie Spider-Man Homecoming. Of course, we have a constant in this podcast. I am joined by a literal man in the chair, Kevin Mahadeo. Kevin, how are you? I am good. I'm actually not in a chair. I am sitting on the edge of my bed. That's how excited I am. I'm at the edge of my bed ready to talk about this. Uh, I'm in my I'm in my nerd room, basically the guest room, and I don't have a chair there at this moment, so I'm just sitting uh, on the bed frame. <laughs> Very Peter Parker esque. I can't afford a chair. How many Lego Death Stars do you have at this moment, just constructed, waiting to go? You know, I not as much as I wish I did. I don't have a lot of Lego stuff anymore. I think also at a certain point, um, when you get into a long term relationship. A lot of these uh, old things get get regulated to this this corner room, so to speak, <laughs> as I just mentioned. Um, so all my Legos are gone, which is better because one, uh, we won't step on them, and two, the dog won't eat them because um, that is always a danger of happening when you have a dog. Uh, possibly also a problem for bodega cats. I'm not too sure though. Uh, I haven't seen a bodega cat in a very long time, having moved to Los Angeles. From New York. I will say, in a post Captain Marvel world, I definitely was looking at that bodega cat and it's like. Could that be a Flurgan? That might be a Flurgan, right? Like, is Goose around here somewhere? Uh, all bodega cats are Flurgans. That's just a, a fact. This is like a Men in Black-style conspiracy theory now, where whenever you see a bodega <laughs> cat specifically, it's actually a Flurgan in disguise. <laughs> yeah, and considering what types of things those things can eat, I think a Lego might be the least of their problems. But here we are. We are talking Spider-Man Homecoming here on Everything is Super, Marvel Cinematic Universe, Rewatch Podcast. Uh, if you have just wandered into this somehow welcome we are so happy to have you uh basically kevin and i are going to talk through this film go through your feedback and of course end everything with our set in stone never changing uh you know uh, etch it in uh put it in front of city hall like a monument ratings for this film if you want to send back feedback for multiple films moving forward you can email us super at postshowrecaps.com plus you could always go onto the twitter a la flash to uh make a a statement with your social media kevin is at kev mahadeo i am at a mike bloom type josh is at round howard and of course we have at 
post-show recaps. But I, I don't want to belay the point too much here, Kevin, because I am super happy that I got the opportunity to come in and swing in here quite literally for Josh. Uh, not because, you know, I, I wouldn't want Josh's presence here on the podcast, but man, I mean, this is a huge, huge moment for the MCU. Is it is it safe to say that Spider-Man is just such an essential hero when it comes to not only the comic book sphere, but especially the comic book movie sphere? I mean, I think that's super, super safe to say. Um, superior to say, even continuing with the Spider-Man title puns. Um, <laughs> it's it's He's arguably the most popular uh, Marvel superhero, I think, maybe even still. Um, you know, a lot of comic book fans might be coming at me being like, Wolverine's the most popular, but like nobody knew Wolverine before the X-Men films at all. And, uh, I mean, comic book fans did, but the general public. But people knew Spider-Man. I mean, he's he's been in the public sphere for a long time. He's had movies previously. He's been very, very popular. He's super relatable. He's arguably the character that really made Marvel what it is today. Um, sort of changed, I think, a lot about what superheroes can be. That that person behind and underneath the mask. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is, this, like you said, it's a huge, huge moment. You know, when he showed up in Civil War was one thing, but, like, having him in his own solo movie officially part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's absolutely a milestone. And we've had Spider-Man movies previously. (laughs) Some of them are good. Some of them, most of them, are really bad. Um, But this, you know, my take for this has been, like, this is the best Spider-Man movie full stop. Um, And I do think Tom Holland is the best Spider-Man full stop. Um there's been a lot of debates about this. A lot of people love the Tobey Maguire ones, and I do too. I mean, I like Tobey to- Maguire ones, and I loved them when I watched them. But it's definitely a different movie, especially if mm. you watch it now. It holds up differently. And Tobey Maguire, I think, was a very different type of Spider-Man. Yes. I think he was a Spider-Man of the 2000s is the best way to, to put that, um, where their focus really was on the drama more than anything else. Um, but, like, this moment, I mean... I wasn't, you know, I'm, uh, I love Spider-Man. He's not my personal favorite. He's definitely up there. This movie certainly makes a strong case for it. Uh, but the other Kevin that was really must have been pumped for this was Kevin Feige. Mm. I mean, you know, you have some history that we can talk about here. But Feige was, I think, fighting for Spider-Man for a long time. He tried multiple times, I think, to help Sony, even when it came to the uh, Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies. Um, and, you know, Sony had their own view on things. Uh, and here's where you really see, like, Kevin Feige, I think, really shine, and, 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 or, I don't want to attribute it just to Kevin Feige, but the character gets to shine because the love and compassion, I think, was there. The love of this character was there, um, or, uh, by the, all the creative team behind this. Yeah, I mean, to your point, the history of Spider-Man on film is, for lack of a better term, a tangled web, right? Like, you have the Sam Raimi trilogy. I don't know. I might even call it a duology, because I don't think any of us want to remember Spider-Man 3 for a particular way. And, you know, I will admit, I'm one of those 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 basic people, Kevin, who says that Spidey is probably their favorite comic book hero. Uh, and part of that was because my initial accessibility was through the, those Raimi films, which were also such a huge part of the time when comic book films, I mean, it really was like 
Spider-Man and those initial X-Men films that I think really helped usher in this idea of, okay, you know, comic book movies aren't all Shaquille O'Neal as Steel or the Blade movies or, you know, uh, you know, the Bane stuff or like anything like that. You know, the Joel Schumacher Batman movies. There, there is, There's some uh, legitimacy to them. And so it was really cool to observe at the time. But of course, to your point, in it being an extremely popular character, that made it an extremely marketable character to the point where, again, we got three Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. We got two Andrew Garfield films, which was intended to make more, and it just did not go super well. And, you know, by the time that this came around, this was this was 2017, and the Andrew Garfield franchise had only really finished up like five years beforehand. So I remember there was a lot at the time of, this is cool but do we really need this? You know, how many times do we have to see Uncle Ben die? Luckily, we are granted a reprieve from that in this film. And I think to your point, that is one of the reasons why this is probably the most refreshing take on Peter Parker that we have seen. I've said this before on the podcast, but just to echo your comments on Tom Holland, you know, I think Tobey Maguire does a great job at portraying the dweebiness of Peter Parker. I think Andrew Garfield does a great job of uh, portraying the, like, uh, the one-liners, you know, the sarcasm of Peter Parker. And I think Tom Holland is a perfect marriage of the two. And he is by far not to shade the other two actors, but definitely the only one of the three that I could legitimately believe is 15 years old, sans his, like, six-pack that he has going on. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a strong factor to this. You know, like you said, the Tobey Maguire one, I mean, I guess dweeby is the best word for it. It's really hard to categorize what sort of Peter Parker he was. I mean... Man, I really hate to be like he was sort of a pathetic Peter Parker, but like he really played up that aspect of Peter Parker a lot. It wasn't even like the dweebiness always. It was just like, oof, mm. definitely pathetic. That is a pathetic person. Um, and I think that's also, though, of the time. I think something that changed in this movie, and we see it not just in the portrayal of Peter, um, but also in the portrayal of some of the other characters, is sort of an update and refresh about what these things mean. Um, like what is, what is a nerdy person like today? And a nerdy person isn't the stereotype that we often attribute to what Peter Parker was in the sixties and what they try to almost continue in the two thousands, which is this, this like screech, like saved by the bell type (laughs) nerd. Um, that's just not, it's just, that's a stereotype that gets perpetuated by other things looking at you, big bang theory. But, um, this is sort of like, he's a, he's a nerd, but he's, and he's not like cool, but like, He's not that. He's not, like, I, I hate to keep using that word pathetic on it, but, like, he's not a sad sack, I guess, is the best way to put it, for what mm-hmm. Tobey Maguire was. And, you know, the Peter in the comics, I think, you can attribute a similar thing, where he's sort of, you know, nerdy, but he's not, uh, like, a loser, I guess. And he has that quip, he has that humor, he has that funniness to him, especially when he's Spider-Man. Um, and we see that in Tom Holland. It's really the first time we get to see it. We didn't really get that in Andrew Garfield either. We definitely did not get Dweeb and Outcast from Andrew Garfield because he looks like frickin' Andrew Garfield. Um, so, yeah, this was, to me, the first real Peter Parker Spider-Man that, that felt really true to how the character should be. Also, like, he's young. Tom Holland is quite young. Um, so you believe the age, you know, mm-hmm. it's not like where it was Tobey Maguire, which is like, okay, you see him in high school for five minutes. He's going to fight Joe Mangiano for whatever reason. And then he is now graduated. He's in college. <laughs> We're out. We're just, he's old now. He's the normal age Tobey Maguire is. Uh, so we get to skip that sort of need. And yeah, um, you also hit the Uncle Ben thing. I think, you know, backing up for a second. I was one of those people, like, to be perfectly honest, when they were like, we're going to do a Spider-Man movie, I was like, Jesus Christ, like, we just had one. Um, 
you know, like, <laughs> like, like, like pulling out my William Defoe Green Goblin, just like, ah, oh, we just had a Spider Man. Um, but <laughs> I felt a lot better. Just even the fact that they didn't do the Uncle Ben thing, I thought was really smart. I think that shows, you know, the type of clever thinking and not beholden to like, I think, too heavy studio notey. Um, system some of these places might fall into. It's just like, well, we just have to have an origin story. You know, that feels like the studio note for so many movies. Uh, we didn't get that here. So, yeah, it, it's 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 interesting for, for that reason. It made me excited immediately um, just in his portrayal and the tone. Like, everything just felt right in this movie compared to, like, what we've seen before, I guess, that we've come before. Well, I think what really helps it is, you know, talking about the setting is I love the choice to move it to like what seemed like a magnet high school, right? Because again, like you said, the usual portrayals of Spider-Man is a very typical, like you said, like Saved by the Bell, Varsity Blues, insert high school movie here, like Mean Girls, right? Where you go down like, these are the jocks, these are the popular kids, these are the nerds, where everyone there is kind of a nerd. Even Flash Thompson, who is, who's, you know, the big jerk, is part of this academic decathlon club. Liz, who seems to be this like unattainable, uh, you know, pop, most popular girl in school senior, is still part of the one of the nerdier clubs there. So I love this idea of making everybody like, you know, in the same bubble of general interest, that it really does not make Peter Parker seem as out there from a social stratification as maybe he did initially. And it also means that, like, you could create a more colorful set of characters. This might be one of the most diverse casts we've seen in an MCU film so far. And, and they don't, you know, pay much heed to it. But even just looking at that academic decathlon team, like, my God, there are so many different types of kids in there and it's it's just it's really fantastic because again you know this is the marvel high school film and i think in doing these types of things they echoed more what a high school film is like especially in the 2010s uh you know we were just speaking about olivia wilde before the podcast because of her own possible spider-based news and Booksmart is another type of movie that like aims to capture that zeitgeist more than let's take the high school environment that existed you know 50 years ago and see if we can uh you know repeat the same thing in a different setting right and i think um a couple things here you know one i i i i i assume you mean colorful in terms of just like interesting characters but i will say like i was gonna point out the diversity of this movie is through the roof mm. and obviously as a person who like really sp speaks a lot about diversity and the want and need and desire to see more of it it's it's such a breath of fresh air to see the level of diversity in this movie um, that's also representative of New York. Uh, so that was that was so great, like you said. Like there's just so many different you know um, uh, people from different back backgrounds here, and I really appreciate that fact. And like you said, it is more representative of what a high school is really like. I think you definitely hit on something. A high school of fifty years ago. So many of these movies, it becomes like who is this being written for, and who is it being written by, like and made by. You see a lot of these old movies that it's it's what they remembered high school of, which was also then informed by their own viewing of stereotypes of high school. I think it says so much that the, the team behind this really took the time to think about what is high school like today and how does that translate to these characters and these archetypes and really update it for that reason. I think that's really smart, lest we get just another like typical high school movie. I mean, I throw a lot of this type of mentality to Another weird high school movie that I think did an incredible job is 21 Jump Street. Shockingly, mm -hmm. uh, that movie 
one, turned me around full 180 on Channing Tatum. Like, I wasn't mm. into Channing Tatum that much, and then I saw 21 Jump Street, and I am like, you are a god. Yeah, because well, yeah, you like, realize that, that he's, in on the, he's in on the joke is the thing. It's like, you're like, oh, yeah, you, you, you realize what you represent, and you steered into that curve. Right, and, like, he's actually, you know, and he's also, like, just very funny, uh, which was really surprising. And I think that movie did a good job because that movie was all about setting up the idea of they're going to go to high school and it's going to be the typical usual what they remember. And then very quickly they were just like, oh, no, high school has changed. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, was really smart. And this movie did the same thing, you know, obviously not to the humor effect. Um, but, yeah, I think it's so important for for writers especially, you know, to do this um, when, when when penning these types of movies especially is just really think about what was the stereotype? How can we update it? How can we make something that doesn't feel dated and weird and stereotypical? Um, and this movie did it to such a high degree. It changed so much about these characters. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people angry about some of it. I mean, the, uh, the MJ thing, the only comment I have to that, and I get it, is that, like, keeping it a secret that she was MJ and having her name be Michelle was weird. I don't think you know josh and i have talked about this before our one of our things that we dislike the most i don't know what your feeling on is but jj abrams star trek into darkness con moment <laughs> is bad it's a secret for secret's sake and it's really bad um i don't know if that's the case here if you want my personal opinion i think it's because of racism and they were worried people would be mad um is why they kept this a secret but this version of mary jane is super different right like this isn't yeah. the kirsten dunn's version we saw in the old spider-man movies um, and some people can, I understandably, I guess, take offense to that. Like, that's not Mary Jane. But at the same point, like, what is Mary Jane? Like, Peter Parker yeah. was like, he's the dweeb. He's going to be a stereotype. What's Mary Jane's defining personality? She's hot. Like, that was sort of Mary Jane's deal. Like, she wants to be an actress, and she's hot, and she's a model, and, like, she's the loving wife, and she'll have a personality, sort of, but not really. <laughs> and I know Spider-Man fans are going to come after me probably for this, but, like, legit, she doesn't have a deep enough personality that feels real because, again, these stories were written by dudes thinking about what their fantasy life would want to be. Um, mm. And I'm guilty of the same type of stuff. Uh, so they gave her a bit of a different personality, a different bit of a quirk here. And I, I do love this version of the character. Um, same with Flash. Like, one, representation. But two, like, Flash's defining characteristic is that just he's, he's mean and he's a bully. He doesn't have to be a jock. The jock is a bully is such a stereotype and so old and overplayed. I love the fact that he's just a person who's not as smart as the others and still picks on Peter and the rest of them. Like, I think the defining trait of the character is still there. It's still the heart of the character is still there. So, yeah, it's just interesting. I love the fact that, you know, tying it back to where this conversation started until I went off the rails as I tend to. Um, I love the fact that they bent the stereotypes of what high school is and changed it up from 50 years ago, basically. Well, I think what interestingly ties back to that, you know, you spoke about the writing and this is a movie written and directed by people who have affiliations in pieces of pop, of fiction, pop culture around high school. So the screenplay was written by Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly. The latter is the probably the more interesting point because this is Sam Weir. This is Little John Daly from Freaks and Geeks. So he is used to uh, you know what it's like to to perhaps play one of those uh, one of those nerds, one of those small quirky nerds. He even gets to recruit an old friend, Martin Starr, makes an appearance in this film as well, which is a fun little connection. And the director is John Watts, who I most prominently know for his work on Napoleon Dynamite, which is another one of those like kind of weird 
quirky mid two thousands high school movies, and not to say that this is a, a director like uh, merging of those two styles, but like these are two guys that know that style and know what a high school movie is like. Because again, as I said before, what I love about the MCU is that, especially when you get into like phases two and three, there really is like a different movie for every genre of film. And due to the nature of these characters, we hadn't had the opportunity yet to do a high school film, uh, just due to the fact that there were no teenagers really in the MCU until Spider-Man came along. And so they finally got the opportunity to do this, and they did it in such a fun, modernized way. But before we get too much further... Speaking of the writers and directors, I would love to just drill down for a second about everything behind the scenes here. Because, I mean, this is one of the messiest conceptualizations of a film, just purely due to the fact that, obviously, you know, when the MCU and, and Marvel really started to rev things up, there was oh, a couple of things left behind. Obviously, you had the X-Men and Fantastic Four were still owned by Fox, and Spider-Man was still owned by Sony at the time. So, Kevin, I know you can shed a bit more light on it, but I know it was to get this one made in general, it was a, a big back-and-forth battle. Yeah, it's it, it's definitely a weird history between um, Sony and Marvel on this, and and in a way, it ties in Fox almost. Like, so people who don't know, back in the '90s, Marvel went through a really difficult time, <laughs> um, and they ended up needing to make some money quick. Uh, they actually I think filed for bankruptcy. Um, so what they ended up doing was selling a lot of their uh, popular IP at the time to. Uh, other places, uh, licensing them out. Most notably, the X-Men, uh, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four. They had Ghost Rider, Daredevil, I believe. Uh, split across various different studios. And um, Sony got Spider-Man and basically has held on to Spider-Man for decades. Um, and Sony's been doing its own thing, making their own Spider-Man movies. They saw a lot of success, as we mentioned, with the Sam Raimi ones, which introduced a lot of people to the character, yourself included. Um, or really got you really into the character. Um, and then came the MCU and all of a sudden these characters that weren't, uh, that popular as popular as Spider-Man or the X-Men all of a sudden are making way more dough than those other characters, especially most recently, as we talked about, Sony had done the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. Those were very not well received, especially financially. Well, I think they did fine, but like for the type of money that they're hoping for, it did not do well. Um, so I don't know exactly how it went down, but Marvel basically approached Sony or Sony approached Marvel, probably Marvel approached Sony, and they penned a deal to basically have Spider-Man be in the MCU, showing up in Civil War, and then Marvel would help create a Spider-Man movie that's still under Sony's banner. Um, And I think the deal was originally for two films, possibly two in an appearance, and so... That led to some shenanigans in the most recent Far From Home right after that. Uh, but that is how we kind of ended up with this movie. A, a deal between two studios to essentially share this character and work together to have him appear in Marvel films while still being a Sony property. Uh, which is sort of, I think, kind of unheard of. Um, but for the fans, worked out real well because we got this yeah. really cool Spider-Man movie. But yeah, it's, it's so odd to, to imagine the battle for this character for so long, because I think if not for the success of the MCU, like this never would have happened. Like not even close. Sony would have never played ball, but, but whatever Marvel did that magic they've been putting in uh, to their movies has really given them sort of a power, uh, powerhouse hand at, at, at making deals now. 
Yeah, to the point where it also ended up sort of reinvigorating the Spidey side of Sony, right? Because now we have Venom, we're going to get Venom with Carnage, we're going to have Morbius, which seems to have a bit of the Spidey stuff in it as well. As we just mentioned, the Olivia Wilde news uh, very blatantly hints that she's going to get involved. We obviously also have Into the Spider-Verse, which I would uh, originally agree with your point that Homecoming might be the best Spider-Man movie, but man, Into the Spider-Verse is like really challenging that for me. I mean, Homecoming is the best Spider live action Spider Man movie. If we're talking, oh, yeah. I guess you're right. Best Spider Man movie, full stop. Yeah, Into the Spider Verse. <laughs> Just because so I, many the, I, I haven't seen any many movies, let alone many superhero movies, that does what Into the Spider Verse does. Yeah, I mean, you know, just to go on a short little tangent here about like Spider Man. Like I mentioned, Spider Man was never my favorite, but boy, oh boy, has he thrown a contest and thrown a gauntlet of be- becoming very close to it between. This movie and and you know the MCU Spidey between Into the Spider Verse and most recently between the PS4 Spider Man video game. Oh my god! Which yeah. also had its an original story. Wow! Like th- those were the things that really made me connect to and understand and really feel an appreciation for this character in a way that I hadn't in the past. And just phenomenal portrayals of the character across the board and story and world and who he is and really making him feel like the hero of everyone. Just anyone can wear the mask, you know, that being a key thing uh, for the character, I think really resonates throughout these interpretations. Um, and yeah, like you, like you said, it's, uh, it's wild, Olivia wild to also imagine the other stuff coming. Um, now I'm going to be perfectly honest. I'm not as thrilled about these Sony specific endeavors. <laughs> I, I did see Venom eventually. And mm-hmm. Boy, oh boy, that was a movie, maybe. Um, yeah, so, I, I, I watch Venom on a plane, and I feel like that's the perfect environment to maybe experience it in. <laughs> I had it on my uh, on my uh, the Roku, basically, and I saw it because it was streaming, and I was just like, whew, this was the movie everyone loved, huh? And so, <laughs> so sometimes in those moments, I wonder about myself compared to the rest of the world, but that's fine, whatever. Um yeah, it, so like you said, there's there's a lot coming here for Spidey. Like this really reinvigorated not just Marvel in that area, but more so in Sony and and what they're going to be able to do now. Again, I guess after the Sam Raimi stuff. Yeah, well, I think to your point, I think what is so uh, appealing and applicable to Spider-Man is this idea of like small fish, almost this idea of the hometown hero, your na- your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, and that echoes so much through homecoming uh especially i'd say like you know the first like half hour of really setting up who spider-man is i love that they the the beginning of this movie is so like just unusual for an mcu film but in such a cool way we'll obviously get to the adrian tombs of it all because i know we both have a lot to say about it but even introducing us to spider-man in this film by showing his pov of the events of civil war was such a cool thing because again this this was a, a really uh highly profiled cameo but it was a cameo nonetheless so it was really cool to get his perspective and follow that character but man i just love that first montage you hear it in the intro to this podcast blitzkrieg bop just seeing like what a day for spider-man is at this moment the very small things he does and attempts to do and that's the other great thing about tom holland as well as he's so damn endearing and like especially you see in that montage he tries so hard he has such an affection for the avengers and how much he wants to be one that like he's clearly trying to bring that to this small section of queens your mileage may vary especially for that poor man who's just trying to get into his car and has you know his hands webbed to it much to the chagrin of his neighbors but it's such also a really refreshing 
reset not only for the character but i feel like for the mcu because it felt like after phase one we just had to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger with the stakes i mean we just came out of guardians 2 where it was like okay we have to save this living planet from you know killing all these seedlings around the universe now it's just boiling back down to like okay i need to help this person find their bike uh it it, it was really fun to get that flashback to the small bananas that some of these heroes started with in the form of such like for lack of a better term, a working class hero like Spider-Man. Yeah, and I think, you know, that is a key factor of who Spider-Man is, that working class hero. And, I, and we really saw it here. We, he is a street level hero to like the T. And it's it's so well done because he's also, like you said, he's trying, but he screws up more often than not, which also yeah. feels very Spidey. He tries, but like messes up. That is very true to the character. But also there's something about this movie that feels so New York- more so than anything mm-hmm. we've seen. And, like, more so than the Sam Raimi and and certainly more so than the Andrew Garfield. But, you know, a lot of people I remember talking talk about that scene in the Sam Raimi one. I believe it's the Sam Raimi one. Where he... <laughs> uh, they Spider-Man's getting beat up and the New Yorkers just start throwing stuff at the oh bad yeah guy. like you you, like, you you hit one of us you hit all of us that type of like thing. people are like oh yeah that's new york and i'm like get the f out of here like yeah and then when they're when they're and that's i believe that's when they're passing him up the train car like he's jesus as well that's, yeah that's another one and you know in in uh the andrew garfield when they had one where they all turned their cranes so he could web swing and it's Look, I'm not saying that's not New York, but that's really just really just sapifying the heart of New York. Like, really just like, yeah, New Yorkers versus, like, this movie, one, yes, the Bodega Cats, but two, the argument about the car, like you mentioned, very mm-hmm. New York. The Spidey do a backflip, and then he does it, like, yeah, like, New York. That one dude who was just like, yeah, Spider-Man, and then, like, the, 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 the Staten Island Ferry, another New York thing I want to talk about later, uh, yeah. falls apart. And then Iron Man says, and he's like, yeah, Iron Man, that's New York. That's the heart where you're just like, all right, Spider-Man, oh, you screwed up. I'll screw you, man. Good job, Iron Man. That's that's the realism, I think, of New York. Like, that's the keeping it real style that New Yorkers have. So, like, this movie also just really hit me nostalgically um, as a person who, you know, loves New York uh, near and dear to their heart but moved away a little while ago. Um it just felt so true to it. Like the fact mm. that he webbed his 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 clothes to a dumpster that later got picked up and thrown in the trash. Brilliant. Like him riding on top of the train car. There's just so much in here that just felt not just ground level, like you said, and not just the neighborhood, but like a real neighborhood, a real New York neighborhood. And I I I really that's another thing that makes me love this movie as much as I do. Yeah, I mean, I think the general theme of this movie really is like the small fries and like what happens, you know, uh, when we're sort of looking at the top level of things, what happens between the cracks. And again, that's what's going to make the character of Adrian Toomes so enrapturing is, you know, the fact that he sort of represents that. Again, especially because these heroes and these dilemmas keep getting bigger to have that reset to this, to this issue being like, oh man, I have to uh, go to the to the dance while also trying to, uh, you know, help save uh, Mr. Stark's possible plane from not getting all of his stuff stolen it's a really interesting thing and obviously also the dichotomy of spidey you know obviously a lot of people a lot of heroes through the years have had their secret identities but i feel like that's spidey has been the one who's like that's always been the closest 
to his character out of all of these of like how do i maintain being you know a high school kid while also being the superhero then you get the daily bugle involved and i know that in in writing the film you know goldstein and daily really made sure and this goes back to the uncle ben of it all to be like we're not going to retread similar plot points from the previous spider-man films that's why there is to your point, with the exception of, of Michelle Neri and MJ, there's no Gwen Stacy. Even the villains that are introduced, like, no no goblins whatsoever, be they father or son. Uh, you know, it, it's it's all about completely new stuff. And one of them is, is that they wanted to sort of focus on the duality of Spider-Man, but not make it so much about, like, I have to juggle both things at once. It was really much more of just about being a student and how being Spider-Man factored into that. Now, there were certainly, you know, things, like, obviously, with the, de- the decathlon, between him missing the decathlon and then also saving them. But I would wager that maybe in a different Spider-Man movie, it would be about, like, oh, my God, how does he figure out to be two places at once? Uh, you know, I'm watching through the Arrowverse right now, and that that has been a key part of a lot of those trying to maintain those secret identities. And if, it feels like they sort of eschewed that in this movie in favor of just, like, really focusing in on who is Peter Parker in this version and how does he change or not change once he puts on that costume? Yeah. And that is the heart of the character to an extent, right? Like I've had discussions with people who Spider-Man is more about like less, less, less heroics all the time. And more about like, how is Peter Parker going to pay his rent? Like that's, yeah. that's sort of the, 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 the key point. Right. And I do think it's more than just a school aspect, but it's so much more subtle. Like the older movies, especially the uncle Ben playing in, they really just want to hammer home the line, right? The the way, great power comes great responsibility. They never say those lines here, and they haven't said it in the MCU at all. And I think that's really smart because, you know, the old adage, show, don't tell. They've done a great job of showing that, showing that struggle because you have these things, and it's a constant struggle for him of his want versus responsibility because his want is to be at the dance. His want is to, you know, join the uh, decathlon. His want is to be part of the Avengers. But his responsibility is to doing the right thing, is to stopping Adrian Toomes, is to not join the Avengers and be, you know, a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. I think that is the theme of these of this movie and really speaks to the character. They said the phrase without actually saying it, and I think that's so mm. smart. And again, speaks to the passion of the character and speaks to writing in a way that really drills down. Smart, clever writing, uh, something we don't always see in Hollywood. Um, so I really love that part of this you know that 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 struggle that he has to go through the the entire way you know spider-man to me isn't always like there's a whole thing i, I you know I, I know someone who's just like well new yorkers are supposed to not like spider-man i'm like first of all there's no thing all new yorkers agree on that's crazy mm-hmm. talk yep um and two like it's people don't dislike or hate him or like him they, they have different feelings and they're sort of just like yeah it's spider-man which is i think tr- again more true to what the character is and the character is not successful all the time. Spider-Man is always about struggling. It's a struggle to pay rent. It's a struggle to get through the day. It's a struggle to be a hero. And that is seen all the way through this movie. And I think that is the heart of the character. And that is why this movie, I think, is, again, Spider-Verse not included, the best interpretation of the character we've seen in live action. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, to your point, if people want a movie where uh, everyone hates Spider-Man, wait for the third movie, apparently, in the MCU Spider-Verse, because considering where Far From Home ended, it looks... Like, that's going to be something very much at the top of the docket. But I think what also helps is this is also one of the the first movies, uh, especially post-Avengers, to really focus on, like, how these Avengers, who was regarded as celebrities, 
really play into the day to day. Like this is about focus a little bit on in some in like Iron Man two and three, right? Like who is Tony Stark after he declares that he's Iron Man? But like it really springs with everything from the Captain America PSAs, which are in freaking credible uh just fantastic way to talk about like if world building if this is true what else is true of course captain america because he's captain america would do like antiquated psas where he sits on the back of a chair uh you know ac slater style and tries to educate people like just so good and we'll get to that post-credit scene down the line but obviously one of the most unique aspects of this movie that separates it from the other Spider-Man films is the presence of tony stark and also by proxy you know happy hogan and like a, a dash of pepper pots at the very end you ask if you ask her though she won't remember that she technically <laughs> wasn't in the scene with him so i guess that doesn't count uh <laughs> but i i think you know i remember at the time when this was released and especially looking at like you know when you look at the poster for for homecoming tony stark is is pretty prominent on that and so you really think like okay is this iron man 4 or is this going to be spider-man homecoming and i do think at the time it was a little bit of a weird thing obviously tony was the one to bring spider-man into the civil war stuff uh but you always wonder like okay tony stark and iron and you know and peter parker didn't really have that sort of relationship in the comics but this is one of those things where you look ahead to infinity war and endgame and oh kevin it 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 sings beautifully in retrospect. It's just it's a really really fun relationship that I'm so glad we got explored for the way that it did. Absolutely, and you know a couple a couple things off of that. Um, one, I'm going to hit on the the poster because like so for me when I think about this poster for Homecoming, it's not the, the the traditional one where you just see the characters' faces, which is the 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 Marvel poster they make it for everything. That's just that's just a style. It's to me the key art to, to go into my marketing world here. Um, is the one where he's uh, reclining headphones on. He's wearing his um, uh, decathlon, decathlon jacket, jacket, the decathlon jacket, yeah, one. yeah, and he, you know, and he's kind of like chilling and relaxing. As a marketer, I lost my goddamn mind when I saw that poster. Like, it's so good. It's such a well done poster that really accomplishes what these things should do, which is immediately hit what is this movie? What is the tone of this movie? What is the style of this movie? And what is that character? It says so much. In the way it's shot, in the way it's set up, like I love that poster, and I think more things need to really take a lesson from that. In my opinion, that's again my marketing brain talking. Uh, but I also know that like the the face poster performs extremely well to broad audiences. Mm. That's the one you put into theaters because people are just like that's that's Robert Downey Jr. Um, but as for me, a personal person, I love those types of you know him reclined. Um, the other thing is I have to like you mentioned the PSA, and there's the one at the end. But I think hands down one of the funniest moments in the mcu is twofold one where he's t- uh, cap is talking and says like my friend here coach you know coach so like he doesn't say his name but he points to the wrong side yep. because uh hannibal burris is standing on the wrong side which is just one great the funniest- great great casting as well like hannibal burris oh, as a laconic gym teacher is fantastic casting he's the entire movie i think is cast perfectly everyone in this movie from martin star to hannibal burris to marissa tomei so like we will, we will talk about all that in a little bit but I think the casting is perfect, but his line right afterwards is like, "I think that guy's a war yeah. criminal now." So I don't know why we're so good. Yeah, I don't know why we're listening to this. I'm pretty sure this dude's a war criminal now, but we have, but you know, sports that I have to play this. So yeah, it's it's so good, and like to me, you know, also this is, uh, I think this is the funniest MCU movie because I think it specifically plays to my humor. Mm. Um, so for me, like this is the funniest movie in the MCU because it's like exactly the type of humor I like. Um, and the last note. Now I'm trying to remember what was the last part of this. Let's let's, let's talk Stark here. Let's I, talk about yeah Tony's role yes. in this. Tony's role in this. Yes, yes, yes. Um, 
you are 100% correct. I think what they set up is amazing, uh, spectacular, uh, fantastic, all, all the words. Um, and it is sort of different, right? Like, Tony Stark traditionally doesn't have a role in, in, in Spider-Man's life in the way that it's portrayed here. Because Tony and Spider-Man really start interacting and really become friends when Peter's an adult. He has graduated college. Mm. Um, he's been Spider-Man for a long time. That version of Peter and Tony do have a friendship and do have a connection relationship we, that we see in the comics when Spider-Man joins the Avengers to the point that Spider-Man unmasks in Civil War in the comic books. So they have a relationship. It's just very different here. So again, I think it's really smart to look at if these characters had a relationship now in the MCU, what would it be like? And you have this sort of like father figure style thing going on. Um, and I think it works really, really well, both for Tony because it informs him as a character and both for Peter because it also informs him as a character. Trying to replace, you know, that Uncle Ben aspect of him and figuring out like what does he need, what does he want versus what is his responsibility again. Yeah. Um, and the way it plays off later, I think, in Endgame is so good. It's it's arguably one of the most emotional moments in Infinity War, possibly in the MCU, uh, when the snap happens and Peter's involved. Um, so I really love that relationship. And again, I've talked about this line before, but Tony's line of, um, if you if you need the, you know, if you're nothing without the suit, you don't deserve to have it, I think it's so smart. I think it's so clever. Um, and I also really like Peter's response of just like, I wanted to be like you, and Tony saying, I wanted you to be better. Uh. That's again, setting up so much about what Peter is and what Tony is as well. And there's just a lot in there that I think is really good and this type of relationship that was almost unexpected but handled phenomenally well. Because Tony was still Tony throughout. I love when he goes with a hug and he's like, I'm just getting the door. Well, and then and that pairs so nicely, though, with your the what you just mentioned, the Mr. Stark I don't feel so good, where he, like, falls into his arms. And especially mm-hmm. in Endgame, when all Tony needs to tell a cap is, I lost the kid. Like, it's crazy thinking about how those moments, and I, I do wonder, you know, how much were the Russos letting these guys in on, on what the path was for these two characters in Infinity and War and Endgame? Because, like, you'd have to imagine they're, it, it's, it's too convenient. Right. And I love also that that line, like you said, I, I always go back to that line as well of uh, if you're nothing without the suit, then you shouldn't have it. Because this is also a post Iron Man three Tony who has that similar type of experience, right, where he loses his suit and he learns that, OK, I really do need to like the best heroes are ones that can rely on their own power. We're going to experience this in the very next movie with Thor yep. and Mjolnir as well. It's a recurring theme throughout phase three. And so, again, that's sort of Tony speaking from personal experience. And I do love also how like begrudging he sets himself up as a father father figure as well you know when he when he calls peter at that one point on the satin island ferry saying like you know uh my my dad had some issues with me as well and i'm trying to break this cycle and it's like even he's admitting like yeah i'm your mentor i'm your father figure at this point and so it's it's an interesting thing you know tony stark only really shows up in like three major scenes but again his presence is so felt it's not like far from home where he's going to be on a freaking brick wall that peter's going to look at and and mourn (laughs) over but he you know between him and happy who john favreau is again just like plays beleaguered so well and he's just fantastic as hapless happy hogan i totally agree that i think that the casting for this is just it's all so so good from like the smallest parts i love you mentioned flash i love uh i think his name is tony revelori uh yeah tony revelori as flash uh because 
I believe the last thing we saw him in before this was Zero in the Grand Budapest Hotel, which is, like, completely the opposite. Like, very mild-mannered, you know, very, very loyal uh, to Ray Fiennes' character, to this just being like, what's up, Penis Parker? Like, just, and obviously, you know, Flash is going to have his other moments in Far From Home, but I think that's just, like, such fun, unexpected casting you know, we'll talk about the uh, the 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 uh, Michael Keaton of it all, but even something like Donald Glover appearing as Aaron Davis, which is like its own little thing that definitely has fans' ears prickling a bit because when you hear when you see him show up and you hear him mention his nephew and you know that he talked about possibly wanting to do Miles Morales at some point down the line, you're like, okay, this could possibly possibly be a thing. But even just having him appear like. To your point, I think this is one of the funniest MCU movies, and that is saying something considering we have the Guardians movies and Ragnarok, and it helps that they cast such adept comedians for a lot of these parts, That just even the ones that just have throwaway lines. Oh, for sure. And, like, yeah, uh, you know, to hit some of the other casting real quick, too, um, like you mentioned, Martin Starr, I think, is great. He, he's actually, as we now discovered, making his second appearance in the MCU, confirmed right. that he was a student in Incredible Hulk who's now a teacher. Even him, like, the little lines of, of course, the, uh, you know, where he's just like, I can't lose a student again. Not, you know, not again. Like, oh, my God. Hilarious <laughs> delivery. Uh, his whole thing that, you know, slaves didn't build the White House or the, the George Washington Monument. And, like, the uh, you know, I, I first of all, I love that moment because, like, thank God, finally someone's actually saying these important things. But, um, like, the casting like that, of course, Ned, phenomenal, phenomenal character. Oh Another, you know, great comedian, Hannibal Burris. Um, I do really, really like the, the, the Donald Glover thing, not because of just the casting, because I love Donald Glover, but because of the history there. I think it's another thing to, like, do something that, you know, could at least give a wink and nod in service to the fans, because, you know, way, way back when, there was a huge campaign, and Donald yeah. Glover wanted to do it, like, play Spider-Man, and he would have been amazing at it. He'd have been great as Spider-Man. Um, he couldn't do it now, obviously, because of the age, but it just... I love that they at least gave that. They, they at least had something there, you know. I really wish he would have been Spider-Man over Andrew Garfield for <laughs> so many reasons now. But, you know, having him be Aaron Davis, having had that Miles Morales connection, because Miles Morales was, I think, also partially based on him, is yeah so great. Um, so I love that they did that. I love that they did that to, for the fans um, to include it. Um, but, yeah, uh, Liz is is excellent. And, you know, just to talk on it now... Marissa Tomei as Aunt May, so great. Uh, uh, just one, she loves bald, quirky men, as we all know. Um, so <laughs> that already, you know, puts her high on a great person list. But also, I just really love that they... Aunt May has just been getting younger and younger yeah. as these movies go. She, she took a dip into the Fountain of Youth and is just, like, gone from, you know... I can't remember who in, in the Raimi movies to Sally Field to now Marissa Tomei. yeah. But, like, I'm glad for that because, like, it was so crazy that Aunt May was always, like, ancient. Um, and, like, I, it's it's crazy that they kept that going for so long. And I like that they finally made her look like what a aunt can be. Like, an aunt doesn't have to mean you're, like, a golden girl. Like, yes, you can be. But also, you can be young and be an aunt. That is a thing that happens. So I like that. What I, in my in my head canon, something... Uh, I'll I'll probably never get to write Spider-Man, but I'm going to throw this out into e- the ether here. Uh, something I always wanted to do was actually what I thought would have been smart is when Peter was young, Aunt May looked really old. But mm. as he got older, she looked younger. 
because that's what happens when you age. Like you, the way you interpret someone older than you changes, right? So I thought it, it could have been a really cool visual dynamic to have it be like when Peter was still in high school, his Aunt May that we see drawn is always looking quite old. But as he grows up and becomes an adult, like she looks younger because one, he is aging up. And two, like you realize like, age isn't like that you know what i mean like so your perception of older people changes that that happens to people so mm. i thought it would be really fun to actually do that in the comics to explain <laughs> why uh she looked so old in the 60s and looks like more you know can look younger now but anyway marissa tomei herself is great as aunt may i think the dynamic is perfect i think she's she she has that like you know correct attitude and love and i think has one of the best lines at the very end of the movie <laughs> when she sees him take off the mess and it's just like what the f-? like Amazing, like so great. Uh, I'm saying that word a lot, but it, it obviously is apt for this. I mean, listen, it's it's a it's a great movie. It's a great, great, great movie, in my opinion. And yeah, Marissa Tomei, I, I understand what people were saying again because I think they were used to the Aunt May of the comics and the Aunt May of the Raimi films. But it also, I don't know, logistically, it wouldn't make sense to me for like a 15 year old boy to have like an 85 year old aunt, right? Like even depending on when Peter's parents passed, you you would assume that he was he was given to their care at like a certain age. I think it's also a very different relationship right peter calls aunt may may in this film doesn't use that moniker which feels like less it feels like more of a familiar and familial status between the two you know we watch them like go out to dinner together she has that great moment where she sort of just like breaks down to him of like i don't know what you're doing you know she shows that she's a bit more onto him than he probably initially thought of like i know you're sneaking around all the time uh, i don't exactly know what's going on with you there's also this unfor- i don't know if it's unfortunate i, I guess it uh, depends on marissa tomei's opinion of like everyone thirsting after may uh we have the tony stuff in civil war we're obviously gonna get happy and far from home i forgot about the thai place waiter giving her like free appetizers the other thing though is that like if people are truly complaining about oh marissa tomatoes look old enough the glasses and the high-waisted jeans she occasionally puts on (laughs) i guess is like that the little call out to that yeah definitely uh makes her feel like an older person sensibility but high-waisted jeans are in so not that uh crazy i think but um yeah i just there's like we said there's just so much in this movie that i think is handled well with the the characters and the relationship and i do it is great that again calls her may because there is something real about that you know as well and like people might get mad at me but i certainly like even to my mom when i you know when i talk to my sister or we're talking to my mom or angry about something we're just like sandra listen you know (laughs) like when you when you drop the like mom formality you just go by first name um so yeah there's just a lot in this movie and the structure and handled and the casting that we talked about. But to me, it's also even thematically, right? Like the idea of want versus responsibility. Um, but like, we got to get to the, I don't, it's not an elephant in the room, but the vulture in the room at this point. Um, and it hit on the, uh, Michael Keaton of it all and talk about, uh, the villain of the vulture. Cause that's another one where they, where they pivot and change what that character straight out is. From, yeah. from from the comics, but again, to me, for the better. I think, um, as you will see, and as I have spoken about, like he's one of my favorite villains in the MCU. Like easily top five, possibly top three. Um, but he's great, and not just because he's Michael Keaton, but that's a big old part of it. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that it, it's crazy. And the thing is, the great, 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 great thing about this character is villains up to this point, even someone like Loki, have been pretty two dimensional pretty one note again even someone like loki who we love the scenery chewing of tom hiddleston there's there's not much depth there and 
I cannot fawn enough over the fact that they opened the the movie with a flashback, with a scene, with Adrian Toomes' origin story, essentially, and that they essentially set up his POV, and that I personally believe, Kevin, in that first scene, Adrian Toomes is the good guy. He's this guy who's, like, trying to, to salvage, bringing this group of people together, like, giving them jobs, and here comes the government to overhaul the project. This is something that we've seen from so many different superhero stories of, like, how the government represents this this sort of type of evil. Hell, we just saw it in the Captain America movies with the S.H.I.E.L.D. and HYDRA of it all, of, like, don't trust Big Brother. Hell, we uh, experience so it now every day, every single moment, because corporations and the government suck! <laughs> yeah, so that's the thing, to watch, like, Tomb sort of become his own working class in a way. He says, the world's changing, it's time we change too, and what I love about Adrian Toomes and Keaton's performance in particular is, man, he's so good at being Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He's so good at being Adrian, at being the vulture who's going to say, I'm going to kill him. Yeah, you know what? I decided today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill Spider-Man. Like, he decides what he wants for lunch. Two, the fantastic reveal of him being Liz's father and him being, like, making dad jokes and calling him Petey, you know? And then immediately snapping back to when he's alone in the car with Peter to being like... Just so you know, I know you're onto me, and I will kill you and everyone you love if you go after me again. And it's so emblematic of Michael Keaton to me, because, you know, depending on what you know him from, when Michael Keaton was cast in Bat- as Batman in 1985, I remember people went wild, and not in a good way, because they said, this is Mr. Mom, this is Beetlejuice, I don't want him as the Caped Crusader, Lo and behold, here we are, you know, 30-plus years later, and he's regarded as one of the best Batmans. And it's because Keaton does a great job of being able to be, like, that chummy guy, middle-aged guy, and then being, like, dark and malevolent as all get-out. And his ability to switch between the two, and the fact that the script let him switch between the two, he was able to do what Spider-Man was trying to do this entire movie. Yeah. He was able to have his cake and eat it, too. He was able to have that duality. I think um, what's really fascinating about this character is well, one, I, I think it's I always like pointing this out. I think it's very funny that the only like the only any time Michael Keaton has done superhero stuff, it is always a flying creature because he's done Batman, he's done yeah. Birdman, and now he's done the Vulture. <laughs> I find that very hilarious. I hope he sticks with it. I hope he never does any other type again. Um, just always flying superhero stuff. Uh, but also, yes, what this villain. For Michael Keaton, I think, does a great job, like you said, in duality and the, in the tension and the creepiness of it all. Um, but more than that, as a villain himself, I think, like you said, Loki is sort of two-dimensional. He's great. Tom Hiddleston does the scenery chewing. The best Loki to me is going to be in Thor Ragnarok, who is not a villain. Yeah. So he ranks very high for me, but we're never going to see that version as a villain. So he's not going to be as high as someone like Adrian's Tombs, in my opinion. Because the other part of it, too, is like you said, I think Adrian is so fleshed out as a character. I think you understand him in a way that's more understandable than Loki. People like Loki because yeah. he's, you know, again, like Draco and leather pants. I don't want to get too much into that for the internet coming after me. But <laughs> it is, you know, he does a couple things that I like. One, I talk about the, the, the connection to the hero. And some people might be like, oh, well, he's enemies with Tony Stark. You said you don't like it when they're enemies of the father figure. And it's like, no, 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 because he's not enemies with Tony Stark. He's enemies to an idea. Tony Stark is part of the idea, yeah. but he's against the, the corporations. He is for working class people against government and corporations 
in a way, Spider-Man is also that. So he also has a reflection of the hero in that way, that dark reflection, the other aspect of a good villain, where Spider-Man is a hometown hero who wants to be big. You know, Adrian Toomes is about, like, who's protecting the neighborhood when you're gone. And I think that's what the character is about. But also, more than that, that fleshes him out, he has a code. You can understand him. Yeah. You know what he's going to do, and he follows that character, um, that, that, that those pieces of himself, you know. Loki Loki can do anything at any time because people will say, like, well, he's a trickster, he's mischievous. And it's just like, well, that also could just be bad writing. But, like, he'll just do whatever you need him to do for the plot to do. He'll just do it because, sure, why not? But you have Adrian who follows this code where he spares Peter in the car because he saved Liz. He doesn't tell him at the the bad guys at the end, the scorpion in, in that post credit scene, who Spider-Man is because he owes him. Again, that idea of, like, he has this very specific code he follows. And I really love that about this character because you don't see that in a lot of other villains, especially in a lot of the lesser villains. So I really, really liked that they did that with this character, and I really liked it developed this way. And I gotta call out, you mentioned it, but I gotta talk about this because the amount of people I saw also saw tweeting about it and mentioning it, that reveal... When he opens the door, everyone gasped. And for a quick moment, you're just like, oh, my God, did he find out and kill Liz or something? Like, what happened? (laughs) But reality is this. And this is – I love this so much because if you've heard me talk on any of these podcasts, and you've certainly heard me talk in Lovecraft Country, boy, oh, boy, does that moment play with our unconscious biases and subtle racism because we did not assume at all that Liz could have had a possible white father. We just assume, well, she's black, her mom's black, it's just a black family. And it's just like, no, you're you're allowed to have diversity in that way. It's allowed to be, you know, an interracial relationship and an interracial family. Like, I love that. I love that they literally played with the audience's subtle racism. And if someone's out there just like, well, I knew it. Get the hell out of here. No, you did not. Like, I don't want to hear it. Okay? Congratulations. Yeah, applause for, applause for you for being able to... Because that's, that's it's a great thing about... And just like any other great twist, it's also one of these things where when you watch it back, you can really see the steps. Like, there are certain parts of the scenes when, uh, you know, uh, when Toombs' gang is talking to him being like, okay, you know, we should move our operation. He's like, you know I can't leave town. Uh, you know, there, there's things to him alluding to the fact that he has a family without outright mentioning it, where, again, when you watch it back, it makes so much sense. And like you said, you know, people, in the best villains, in my opinion, like, always do have that sort of coda in their head, this motto of, like, why do I do these bad things, this justification. And for him, he says, quite literally to Peter, nothing is more important than family. I loved his monologue to Peter about, like, you know, hey, you judge me for selling weapons, but guess what your pal Tony Stark did, like, 10 years ago at this point, you know? And I feel like the point of the rich and powerful, uh, you know, just keep doing whatever they want, and the rest of us get table scraps, very prescient today, I'd see. Like, I mean, he's essentially talking about class warfare, which I think a lot of people are, are arguing about nowadays, and I think that also makes him one of the most accessible heroes we've had up to this point like i think he actually echoes a lot with killmonger of this idea of like someone who has been out there in the world he has not been in an ivory tower whatsoever he is not one of these guys in a suit that we've seen innumerable amounts of times in these marvel films he is someone who knows firsthand how these hardships affect the little guy and he wants to make sure like look if i'm getting screwed over I'm going to try to take advantage of this. He says to a point, like, they keep making messes, and we keep getting rich. And it's also an interesting way to sort of deal with what was set up in Civil War as well, of, like, what effect do the actions of these superheroes 
have on the little people. Uh, it was weird to see that first scene, for example, uh, Levi the Leviathan, fresh from his t- take on Survivor Earth's Mightiest Heroes versus Villains, like collapsed in, in Grand Central Station. Speaking about the twist, I mean, I don't know. I, I might say, th- I don't think the MCU is really known for like its third act twists, but I would say it's this, and it's probably the the Kree scroll reveal in Captain Marvel is probably like two of the best implementations of that idea. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'll talk about the Kree scroll thing, but I wasn't as big of a fan of that twist reveal for reasons that are more like actually meta than they are for the movie mm. itself. Um, one, I feel like that one was a little more easier to see coming to um, that, like, oh, the people who are supposed to be teaching you and learning you are actually your oppressors, and the bad guys aren't actually that bad. And it's like, yeah, all right, it worked, but. This this was just like holy crap like and it set it up so well again like there's he talks about his daughter a lot in this movie um yeah. but the other part of it you know you mentioned Killmonger I'm really glad you did because I have talked a lot about how Killmonger is probably my favorite is my favorite uh, villain in the Marvel Cinematic Universe um possibly in 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 all of uh, these Marvel movies um but I think what's also makes this villain so good. Um, and you see it in Killmonger, and I'll get more into that when I talk about Black Panther, is that the hero learns something from the villain. It is not Mm. a story where it's just like, the villain is bad, and we have to beat them, and I have learned nothing from this journey, except that good has to prevail, uh, which happens so much in everything else. I am faceless, nameless villain. I also have your powers. Fight me. Okay, great. We did it. Um, Peter makes that choice at the end when he rejects the fact that he is going to join the Avengers because of Adrian, because of that speech, because of the idea of who is going to protect the neighborhood. That is why he makes that choice. The hero learned something. The hero changed because of his encounter with the villain. That makes a good story. That makes a great villain. And I think he accomplishes that in spades. Like, it's so well executed and so well done. I also love that, you know, Peter does save him because that also is a moment for Peter. That also is a character-defining moment. Not just because it means we can get more of, you know, the Vulture in the future movies and more Michael Keaton, but I also just really like that. I like that the hero isn't like, oh, well, we're going to have to kill this villain now. He's gone. Like, that happens in so many of these superhero movies, especially outside of the MCU, you know, because, like, heroes are dark and they allow death. Um, Even Batman, as much as I loved... You know, um, Batman Begins. It is a weird moment where I love the line, but when he says, like, I won't kill you, but I don't have to save you, it's sort of like, well, that's still murder. But, you know, like, you know, that's a little bit cooler because he's Batman, I guess. But I like the fact that Spider-Man's like, no, I'm not going to let this person die. That's not, you know, that's not what I'm going to do. Plus, also, like, he's like, I kind of get it. I get your point. I'm not going to let you die for this. Um, So, yeah, there's just so much in there with that character and his relationship with Spider-Man. And also, like, as a nerd fanboy, my gosh, you have these movies in the past that tried so desperately, like Sam Raimi's third Spider-Man and God knows Amazing Spider-Man 2, that's just like, just cram Spider-Man villains into this. Yeah, and then we'll, oops, that's how we'll, all villains, basically. Yeah, let's, you know, that's how, and then we'll set up the, the, the future movies by just cramming them in here like this. And it's like, no, but like this one did it so well. This one set up the shocker. It had the thinker in it. It had um, Scorpion in it, but in subtle roles and small roles as part of his crew. And we even saw Mysterio set up in the next one. We'll see how that plays out. Like, they've set up the Sinister Six in a way that I think could really work. Obviously, the danger is having that many villains in a movie at once is crazy and could be too much. I personally think if they're going to do it, you got to do it like the Spider-Man video game. I don't want to say what that is for fear of if you haven't played it, it's such a great moment when it happens. Um, but like, it's so well done in there. And I feel like this is so well done. And it's setup is really, really, really great. 
Um, so yeah, I, I just, Adrian James, what a, what a great villain. I just, so, ah, I love it. I love this movie. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of actually, uh, you know, video game, I, I want to talk about the action sequences in this film because I do think Spidey is a, such a distinct, uh, action hero from a lot of the other superheroes, which are more about, you know, punch, 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 blast, 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 in that, you know, if we're talking D&D parlance, Spidey is more about dexterity. Uh, he does have that sort of super spider strength, but it's much more about him navigating from place to place easily and, and being able to essentially perform acrobatics. And that's what makes also the Spider-Man games, bar none, the best superhero games. You know, it's it's, it's uh, you mentioned Spider-Man on PS4, but I know uh, Spider-Man 2 all the way back in the day was like a super, super good game. And it's just because, like, it's so fun to be Spider-Man. And I think that reflects well on the action scenes. You know, I, I, is there anything as big and momentous as some of the action scenes we've experienced with some of these other heroes? No, not necessarily. And we'll talk about that in the final battle rankings. But there's just something about, like, the way that Spidey battles, especially once we get the suit upgrade as well, that I think just makes for a really, really fun time and gives a different type of rhythm to the fights that we're used to. Yeah, for sure. I think, like you said, it's such a dynamic skill set and, and, and fight ability. Um, and we see it used in, in very interesting ways, especially when you incorporate the uh, Spider-Man suit in there and you have the, you know, when he's interacting with Karen, the AI, which is some of the best stuff. Oh, uh, and which is, again, if we're talking about preciousness, like it's, it's both like sad yet so fitting to have like this sort of, especially when he's talking about like, oh, you should tell Liz how you feel. Like now's your chance, Peter, kiss her. <laughs> you can be like, yeah, that's very Karen like, right. To yeah. be like, I, I need to speak to my supervisor here and tell Peter how he feels about Liz. It's so it's, it's, it's great. And I love love that you know they have the different like types of web impact you know impact web electrical web straight out of the video game stuff but it allows for a really interesting dynamic usage of his powers um that said i do think you know the final fight in my opinion you know looking ahead isn't one of the best ones i think there's you know it, it's okay it's, it's strong it has a lot of emotion behind it and i like that but i think the dynamic of spider-man's abilities you see it more when he's you know stopping the robbers or um when he's on staten island ferry um that scene i think is a great um, showcase of his powers. I thought that was really, really yeah. well done. It, it was obviously, you know, showcasing similar to how they did the train sequence in Spider-Man 2. I was um, going to say, literally with one. the complete same image of, like, yes. again, Christ-like imagery of him holding things on either side and screaming his face off. Yeah, except he kept the mask on this time, I believe, which, good. That, you know, just thank you for having your mask on. That, you know, like a, like a hero would in this circumstance, not just because we need to show the actor's face and they feel uncomfortable, but whatever. Um... I like that, like how he did that swinging around, like zipping stuff, you know, shooting the stuff that like that was such a well executed sequence and really showcase, I think, his powers at work um, in a great, great way. Uh, I also, you know, I mentioned it early on, but I do have to another New York thing. Shout out the Staten Island Ferry as one of my favorite, favorite New York experiences. Um, just if, if you don't know New York and if you if you're visiting New York and you're wondering something to do. Or if you've lived in New York a long time and you haven't done this, high recommendation. Something me and my friends did all the time. This started with uh, my friend uh, Ricky. Um, I won't shout him out too much because he is he is very involved in the industry. But um, it was his birthday and he wanted to be on a boat. So we went to the Staten Island Ferry. And it was the first time we did it and it became a standard thing now where I, when people visited, we took them to the Staten Island Ferry. Because at the time, the Staten Island Ferry was free to ride. You literally just can get on the boat, buy beer, 
get on the boat, buy beer on the boat, get off the boat on Staten Island, never leave into Staten Island because also probably not a great thing to do, but <laughs> uh, get out there. You can buy another beer. You can see some fishes in some aquariums. There's a bar there that at the time you could get a beer and a shot of Jameson for like six bucks. Chef's kiss great. Um, and then just ride that ferry back and forth. And it was so much fun, especially if you do it with some friends or whatever. It's a blast. We had a great time. And you actually get a really, really great view of the Statue of Liberty from the Staten Island Ferry. So that's another strong reason to do it because, you know, a lot of people want to go over or drive, you know, uh, uh, get on a boat by the Statue of Liberty or it's booked up and you can't get there. The, the ferry does that. And I love that they include it because it's, it's legit one of my favorite things to do in New York. Um, and I'm just going to say, if you're a New Yorker, and it, well, not now, I guess. Ugh, ugh, they, t- they took the Staten Island Ferry from us! Now I'm even more mad about everything happening. I think it's still up. I think it's just like half capacity or something. So that means probably it's, it's a 50% chance reduced that any illegal weapons dealings will go down to end up with <laughs> alien technology like exploding and causing the boat to split in half. So that's a good sign. That is a good thing. You're right. I guess there's some pros and cons to all this. But uh, yeah, just had to shout out the Staten Island Ferry for that. <laughs> I will say, though, the Staten Island Ferry, I agree, is fun. Definitely has callbacks to that Raimi stuff. I will say, though, I think my favorite sequence was probably the Washington Monument. Because I feel like, to me, that was the first display of, again, like Spidey using the suit, but using it in his own ingenious way. Particularly when just the sequence of him jumping, flipping behind the helicopter, using it to swing through the window. And then him doing like this very casual slide and then shooting the webs to hit the elevator. I think there's also some personal stakes in there as well, considering like the entire uh, decathlon team is in there. He gets some nice, like, uh, you know, flash is a, is a doofus and an asshole moments as well. And it's also, this movie is so interestingly plotted as well. Like it's, it's tough to sort of, it doesn't follow a conventional structure. And I like that to the point where, you know, until we get to the dance, when he has to put that, that old school suit back on, there's this weird, like reversal of fortune where Spider-Man turns back into Peter Parker. And I think that comes as a result of the fact that we did not see Peter Parker become Spider-Man because there's no origin in this film. He already enters as Spider-Man, but to see him, you know, going into this third act, becoming back to who he was normally and, and seemingly getting on with like his life, pretty okay was such a new thing that we saw from this character that continues to show very new ways in this movie yeah and you know i i think that you know is a great excuse me hero's journey um as well for the character uh that you know seeing him have to like you said kind of go bare bones and embrace the idea of being peter parker because that ties back to that theme of if, if you're nothing without the suit right so he had to be peter parker essentially to save the day and continue to be peter parker as spider-man you know in the future and not just join the avengers someone has to look out for a little guy you know as 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 he says as influenced by tombs um you know there's uh the other thing i do want to hit too actually before i forget this you know the dance setup with liz i thought was really great obviously liz isn't as fleshed out as um some of the other characters but i i think that 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 works out okay because you kind of get a gist for her but it's also from peter's perspective so you don't know the girl that's yeah. always you know that you're really into you don't know her as well as you would wish you could or do um hence also the implication of the tweet or the tweet the reveal um <laughs> but i also really like again you know the throwback to the the michelle mj of it all i mentioned you know she i loved her entire sequence there in the decathlon i loved it when she you mentioned obviously she's building the washington monument um, and I also really like something I picked up on this time around is that she mentioned how she's observant, um, which we see happens a lot in this. And that really, really plays into another great character beat that she figures out 
um, in Far From Home that he is, in fact, Spider-Man. And I think that's yeah. really, really smart. And again, I think that's better than a lot of what we end up with with Mary Jane from the comics because it's just it's beholden to a traditionality from 60 years ago. Um, but I love that. Like, I like that buildup of that character as well in that way. Someone who figured it out. We established that she's smart. We established that she's observant. So that comes out playing in, you know, her uncovering that he is Spider-Man. It's, one of, it's, it's similar to one of the few few things I think the original DCEU did well is that they had Lois figure out he is Superman very quickly. She is a journalist and she's smart, so she figured it out. And I love that. I think that's one of the best things done to that character in decades, um, which I've stated. So I really like that they did that here with with, with uh, Michelle slash MJ. Um, again, your mileage on that will vary, and I, I get it. I do get it in this case about having her be uh, MJ as like, oh, why not just have it be another character entirely? I do get it in this circumstance, but the character that we are presented with, I do think is very strong, and I really like her as a character. Yeah, and I personally always took it as like, it's just like a fun little Easter egg that I think they always intended her to be a completely different character, because yeah, to your point, she is really different, and I love that Zendaya played her. This felt at the time, very against type for Zendaya, who used to be a Disney Channel kid. You know, this is also before, like, Euphoria happened, when obviously she showed that she can be a lot deeper. But, like, her deadpan aspect is such a great comedic force in this movie, to the point where I actually am not a fan of the fact that they sort of dulled her edges a bit in Far From Home to, I think, make her a bit more of a palatable love interest to Peter. Because, again, she was just such a fun, unexpected part of this movie that made for such a great force and, like you said, really helped plant the seeds to what that big reveal or so we think is a reveal is going to happen in far from home liz has a moment here too right where like peter says i like you and she replies i know and it's just going to become a runner that peter parker is is not so subtle about things let's start getting into some feedback here uh because i want to start by getting into a character who we have not spoken about yet i'm going to pose this question to you kevin it's it's a it's a sophie's choice if you will luke edwards asks the big question of this podcast for me is Ned or Luis? Who, in your opinion, is the better sidekick? <laughs> um, I might have to give the edge out to Ned, personally. Um, I, I mean, think... Luis cannot rock a hat the way that Ned can. N- yeah, he, he can't. Um, now, Ned might not be able to tell a story as well as Luis, but I also think that Ned obviously plays stronger to actually sidekicking and helping the hero more than uh, Luis directly does. Um, also, you know, (laughs) also, you know what? Here's another thing. I refuse to choose. These are two minority actors in a very white universe. They are both awesome and equally great. Get out of here when you're forcing me to choose between my minority loves. (laughs) Oh, I love Ned. I love Ned so, so much. And I particularly love the dynamic between, uh, Jacob Badalon and Tom Holland. Like, the two of them together, because it really is... You know, when Ned finds out that Peter's Spider-Man, which is also a great twist as well, right? Because that's something that usually we... It's a big thing. I mean, the end of Spider-Man 1 was, you know, Peter saying, I can never tell Mary Jane who I am. Finding out who your secret identity is, like, a big part of a narrative. And to have Ned accidentally find out is fantastic. But the two of them geeking out about Spidey's powers, like, together... It's such a great dynamic between the two. It really did feel like a bit, you know, I I recently watched Shazam and it also really had that dynamic, right? Of like, what happens when you get two, like, adolescent boys just like, be like, 
oh my god, I have superpowers, this is the greatest day ever. And again, that's a dynamic that we didn't really have in the MCU before. And to have that brought in with, like, they're both just so, despite the mystery around them, they're both so mystified by everything they're involved in is amazing. And of course, Ned has some killer lines, including probably one of my personal favorite lines when the teacher walks in on him on his three laptops. It just sheepishly says he was looking at porn. A great moment. Uh, easily one of the top lines, again, of, of this movie, which is filled with top lines. I do think my favorite is still uh, War Criminal. Also, the ending line of what the, what the F, I think, might be the best ending line in any movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But uh, Ned saying, I'm watching porn? Like, so great. He has so many wonderful lines. And, like, where he tra- he asks early on to wear the mask, and you actually see him wearing it later when they're all wait- you know, when they're waiting around. He has so many great moments. And you're 100% correct, though, about that dynamic. I was thinking the same thing. It is very much, um, or rather Shazam is very much like this um, in in its execution. And I think that also ties into, I love how many people find out his secret identity. I love that MJ is going to figure it out. I love that Ned finds out. I love that um, Aunt May finds out. Because there is something, and I think of a change in comics and in superhero stories that I do think needs to start happening a little bit more. And that is the idea of the secret identity needs to shift a bit. I think in the past, again, it's this weird, like, male heroic fantasy, the sacrifice they make for the people they love. But at the same time, it is also lying to the people you love. It is deceiving them in some way. It's doing them a disservice, you know, to this type of stuff. Um, And taking away their own, you know, um, uh, um, uh, agency uh, in making a choice about whether they want to stay with you or not after that. Um, so I love this shift to the people that are close to him or the people that are close to your heroes are knowing, right? Like the Flash, I think, broke that barrier um, along with the, the sound barrier and then the, the, the time barrier. Uh, but they did that, and I loved it. I loved it in the first season. How many people just kept finding out that Barry Allen is a Flash was great. And I love that shift, and there is a huge, huge shift now in superhero storytelling for that. And I think it works really well in Shazam because you get these adolescents up to it. And for a lot of adult heroes, that's always that's already the case. Iron Man, everyone knows who he is. Steve Rogers, everyone knows he's Captain America. So it is interesting to see that shift, um, both on a like philosophical and storytelling level, but also just as you said, the sheer comedic joy of two teenagers, one of them having powers and then kind of joking around and and, and planning that is great. Like, can you shoot web out of anywhere? Like, it's just it's so great. It's so clever. And like another aspect of this that you know, kudos to the writers, directors, and everyone involved for 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 including this type of stuff that felt real to like kids in high school and i would also say yeah i I personally would would edge out ned above louise just because like you said ned's utility especially when he comes through as as the man in the chair uh you know doing his best chloe at ctu 24 style yeah like just like celebrating like it's it's the super bowl is awesome plus he does uh he does you know discombobulate the shocker as well Mm -hmm. when peter that is most vulnerable (laughs) so he does defeat him there david wants to point out something again speaking of the casting david says i just want to point out that peter's suit is voiced by Jennifer Connelly. Jennifer Connelly, Connelly is married to Paul Bettany, the original voice of Tony's suit and eventual vision. I just think that's fun. And also he pointed out that uh, Jennifer Connelly is also a former Betty Ross. So Jennifer Connelly has a, a deep entrenched history with Marvel, not only playing a previous Marvel character, but also being married to vision quite literally. Scarlet Witch is, uh, is shook. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is one of those like fun facts that I really did like when, when I found out that, uh, Karen was voiced by Jennifer Connelly. Also, you know, Jennifer Connelly for a lot of people. Childhood crush from um, Labyrinth. Also, Labyrinth, in the yeah. Here. 
Yeah, she's a phenomenal actress. Um, you know, and it, and it was such a like like yeah, great delightful Easter egg to have her as Karen. And again, their dynamic in in that scene in that sequence where he's stuck inside the 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 storage area is just just comedic gold. Brian says, my favorite thing about this movie is the casual diversity. Speaking to a point that we made at the beginning of this podcast, it looks like NYC and shows that Marvel is more confident in its storytelling that it can portray this kind of world and not worry about catering to notoriously problematic fanboys. The best example I can think of is when May comes in and finds Ned in Peter's room with Peter in his underwear. She doesn't bat an eye, just says, put some clothes on. Compare that with the throwaway transphobic storyline Rhodey tells about Tony with, quote, a woman who turned out to not be one in Iron Man 1. Good on you, Marvel. And I think this speaks to a point that you and Josh have been making throughout Season 3, and I think why you guys had such a, a big mark against Doctor Strange and sort of being a step back with that is that, you know, the MCU has so much ground underneath them at this point, so much runway in a manner of speaking, that they feel like they have the clearance to take off into new areas and whether it's you know being comfortable casting a wide array of people or writing characters in unique and different ways than initially expected especially from a comic book perspective that that is why this movie is so cool and also so important to what's to come not only with spidey but also you know a lot of the stuff that's to come with the mcu yeah and i think you know that diversity is so important again you know having to be able to see someone that looks like you is really great and you know, you see the effect of having different voices and that diversity of casting and leading to something like Black Panther, getting to something like Captain Marvel. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, that, that it, casual diversity, I guess, is a great way of putting putting it. But it is, it's so refreshing and so wonderful. Like, again, I call out that line twice and I'll do it a third time. I love the fact that they point out the, the idea of the Washington Monument being built by slaves. Like, like, holy crap, to have that in a movie, especially in a family-friendly, you know, four-quarter, you know, style movie to go into, again, the marketing world um, is, is huge. It's, it's awesome, and it's great. Like, I I would love more diversity in the actual um, uh, leads, obviously. Uh, that mm. is more a problem of um, uh, history, and I think is a line that I really, really wish Marvel and Disney would cross. Um, my hope is still that they're going to do it for the X-Men. Uh, I, I've kind of mm. mentioned it before. I, you can check my Twitter feed for a really big one about why I have a strong argument that Magneto uh, and Xavier should both be black or at least... Yeah, I, I, Magneto, I just read that yeah. recently. Loved that. I absolutely love you couching that in a lot what's, of what's going on today with this idea of persecution. Uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a bold choice, but it's a great choice to make. Yeah, and they have that option now, and I think they should do it. I think this is, this is the next step. You've done Black Panther. You've allowed casual diversity in casting do the big step and, you know, take a character and, and, and um, have them, you know, not change their race, but update them into a modern day context um, and diversify your leads. Uh, so yeah, I, you know, hundred percent on it. I love the casual diversity. I wanted to keep going on forever and become more and more uh, prevalent in, in these stories. Molly Shock has a really interesting question. Looking back on this, does Spider-Man actually accomplish anything? He gets the bodega blown up nearly destroys the Washington Monument, bisects a ferry boat, uh, which, you know, would and also she puts in parentheses, would it have killed Tony to let Peter know he had called the FBI, and gets a plane crash, dropping a few turbine engines along the way. Plus, wouldn't all that stuff in the plane have its own tracking devices? You think the Hulkbuster doesn't have a low jack at least? So what do you think, Kevin? What do you think about this argument? Did Peter Parker end up making the big impact that he hoped to this entire film? 
Um, so yes and no. I mean, I think she's right. He does. He, he, it's not that he doesn't accomplish anything, but he is a screw up. And I think that's key to the character. I think I mentioned that earlier at the top of the podcast, that it's important that he messes up and he does it a lot because one, he is a kid. And two, like, I think it's important for your heroes to like mess up and learn. Um, heroes that just succeeded everything. I don't think it works as well. Um, but two, I do, you know, I do think he accomplishes stuff. Like he, he does ultimately save the day, whether or not he caused it or didn't is is debatable because the existence is this or the truth is this if spider-man didn't exist or he wasn't around worse things would have happened and i think you know in that regard an accomplishment occurred like because he had to have originally alerted tony in order for the even the fbi to become involved so he did have an impact in the story yes 100 percent um i also think to, to to point out two things one if you are a kid and a teen and you've been chastised enough, you're not going to stop. You're going to stop telling your parents stuff. That's how that works. That's mm-hmm. so him not telling Tony about, you know, or Tony not telling him about the FBI and stuff. One, Tony doesn't trust him. And two, like, yeah, he's not going to tell him like I'm here on the, like that dynamic feels absolutely true to like what a teenager and that parent dynamic would be. You don't need to know. You've been a bad kid. Just go to your room and keep quiet. Um, so I think that's fine. And the other thing too is like they actually show the the tracking device uh, interference happening because they uh, they they put out a, a secondary drone after taking right. the plane. So that you know even if it had a tracking day, they clearly interfered with it um, in that moment. But it is it is an amusing observation. But I do think that you know it, it is important that he screwed up, and I think that he does accomplish some stuff, just not as effectively as he probably should <laughs> as a as a full grown hero one day. Final piece of feedback here from Jason Lee. Uh, Jason highlights one of his favorite aspects of this movie, and as we talked about it before, the fact that it's such a great high school movie. All the kids are portrayed so realistically small and weird and awkward and not overly Hollywood attractive and really feel like the weird, dumb, immature kids you'd find in a real high school that have no idea what they're doing. And yeah, that that's what it comes down to. You know, I, I don't exactly know how the ages match up to uh, how the kids were ultimately cast. But I don't know, like, looking at Betty Brant, for instance, like, she looks super young. Uh, you know, it seems like a lot of these kids that they cast, I don't know, maybe they did the, the Lord of the Rings thing and filmed them from an, a different angle to make them look short. But the this, in a world where you had kids on Glee who were in their 30s playing high schoolers, you know, these were people who, kids who looked and, and passed for, like, weird brainy teens that go to this random charter school in the middle of Queens. And that's also makes this movie like so quirky and fun and very atypical from even high school movies that surround it. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's actually such a great call out is that they felt like teens. Um, it's not only that like the portrayal felt very real in like how high school is set up and the elimination of the idea of like, you know, just jocks and nerds and they pick on each other and whatever. Um, but like, I do love like the Betty Brandt thing you called out, like that AV club thing at the beginning, that announcement is so spot mm. on and so true and real to what that's like. I loved that bit and we see it again on Far From Home, but that is so typically high school especially the way that they try to quote-unquote act on there and act on on yeah. camera i think is really or even the again, even the blips that go to like a green screen for a hot second when, yes. the, when the tech momentarily screws up yeah 100 percent on that and like also you know this is something you see like the ties does tie back into peter being nerdy and it's not pointed out as and i think it's great that they don't but all his shirts are so stupid and nerdy and the type <laughs> of humor that you would find amusing as a teenager where he has one where it's like um 
the physics is theoretical, but the fun is real. Uh, he has that like uh, find X, and it's like circled, and it's like I yes, found I love. It. Like, I, I noticed the find X shirt. I also noticed yeah. Ned only has like bugs on his shirt. Like there have been several scenes where he has like a fly in his shirt or a bee on his shirt. That's so great, and like those are little things that again feel real to like people's fashion sense. I think is really smart. Um, so yeah, those are all little things that I think work really well. A, a good comp for something like this in terms of comedy is the first season, um, and I love the second season, but the first season of American Vandal on Netflix is some mm. of the best kids acting like kids I've seen in a long, long, long time. Especially where, like, how kids think they're so funny. Like, it does such a great job in the acting in there, and it comes into the writing. And I, I see that reflected here. They just write kids into the way that they actually feel and thinking they're so hilarious and thinking that they're so clever. Um, yeah, it, it's it's great. Well, let's move into our Infinity Stone rankings. I mean, I don't think it's going to be that much of a spoiler to say that we look on this movie very favorably. So it's a quick review again if you just stumbled in here. Uh, so you've stumbled into this podcast for the first time. Essentially, uh, this week, Kevin and Josh and myself have given the movie a ranking from one to six Infinity Stones. Uh, and then, of course, you all gave your rankings as well. That is all going to average out Kevin's score, Josh's score, my score in this case, and the audience's score to give an overall rating of Infinity Stones, which will rank in the overall pantheon of movies and villains. But let's start with the movie first. Uh, and Kevin, I know you and Josh both gave this straight up six. We did. And we came into it assuming we were going to. Uh, but yeah, even after watching it, I'm like, yeah, this movie's a six. There's no question to me. Um, it's just so well done. I, I you know, and like th the nitpicking, I think it becomes that where it becomes a nitpicking thing to find out why it's not a six. But in terms of like, we gave avengers the original avengers a six because we enjoyed it so much and we had seen that movie a couple well times i've seen this movie several times and i still enjoy it just as much so for me it's absolutely a six it just handles everything so 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 well but somebody somebody seems to disagree with us <laughs> I, I only went slightly below. I gave it a 5.8. Those that listen to Down the Hatch, which is the Lost Rewatch podcast that Josh and I know is, I'm a bit of the Kevin in that regard, and that I tend to be a score things a bit lower. Because I totally agree. God, I had so much fun watching this movie. I had so, so much fun watching this movie. Even the most, like, emotional moments. I think Tom Holland in particular, like such a freaking good actor and plays that pathos extremely well where to your point we could have had a very easy crying spider-man meme on our hands once again a la toby mcguire but tom holland does such a subdued thing with it the only reason why i docked it points was probably stemming from that final battle again i i do think that spider-man homecoming lacks that big action piece like when you had the battle from new york in something like the avengers I will also say, like, I, I, like, I like that you said, that, you know, introducing the Tinkerer and introducing, you know, multiple versions of the Shocker. I will say I wasn't a huge fan of maybe the way they used the Shocker. I love Bokeem Woodbine. He was one of the highlights of Fargo's season two for me. And I thought, and I, thought I remembered him being, like, a bigger, more magnetic presence in Homecoming than he sort of ended up being. But again, like, the focus was on Tombs understandably so so again like you said it, it's those small nitpicks for me that drop it only down to a 5.8 the audience 
was uh, very much on the same page with high marks. We got a couple of like 3.5s. Uh, clearly, those are must be Flash Thompson fans here. But the overall average audience score for Spider-Man Homecoming is a 5.1, which is going to put this overall a 6 from you, a 6 from Josh, a 5.8 with me, and a 5.1 with the audience as a 5.71 average. And this is Kevin Mahadeo, the number two MCU movie right now below the Avengers. It catapults over Captain America Civil War. Actually, it just edges out Captain America Civil War. Captain America Civil War has a 5.70 average. This has a 5.71. And then uh, hops over Winter Soldier and the two Guardians films to be the new number two film. Does that feel right to you? I mean, yeah. I feel like it was going to have to be, to me, top three from where we are right now. Um, I, I, you know... I can go back and forth all day about the Civil War versus versus this one, um, and it is hard for me to choose. I did rate it slightly higher than uh, mm-hmm. Civil War, but you know, if you disagree, there's people listening to this. Send some send send some new scores, and I get not new scores, but send some uh, you know send some stuff. But then again, it might push it higher because this movie deserves a six. So I feel okay with this. <laughs> Let me throw out a question here, and again, I don't know how hot of a take this is. Could this be like? the best MCU debut movie for a character. Because for that, it's between this and Black Panther, in my opinion. I'm, I'm really trying to figure out, like, which character has the better debut movie in the MCU. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I think, you know, um, wow. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. It is yeah. Mr. Black Panther for debut movie, for sure. Um, and it is interesting. Those are both the two most diverse movies, but what ups? Um, so... I'm really, yeah, I, and, and, you know, again, this, this is that number two. No guarantee it's going to stay here for very long because the movie's coming up. We've said this, Josh and I have said this on, on the podcast before, like, we are on a streak right now of very, very high-ranking films. Well, let's move into Adrian Toomes. And again, no surprise here. You and Josh gave him a six. I threw in the six as well, because you know what? He's evil. Let's make it six, six, six. (laughs) He has to be one of the most unique villains. Again, like who he represents and how he sort of uh, comports himself is unlike any character we've even experienced since. Uh, You know, we're going to hit a really interesting streak of villains between Ego last week, this, we're going to get Hela next week, and then going into Killmonger. That is, like, just such a turn for the villains that, honestly, I would not be surprised if, like, we have them filling out the top five alongside Loki 2.0. But like we talked about, I think what pushes him above Loki 2.0 for me is, again, it's much delicious fun as Tom Hiddleston is, I just think what what the character represents and how Michael Keaton is able to perform him is honestly a stroke of genius, in in my personal opinion. And so with uh, an average as well from the audience of a 5.2, Kevin, with a 5.79 rating overall, this is resoundingly so far the number one villain in the MCU. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I, it's hard to be like, it's not even close because there's like this decimal base, but like, yeah, it's, it's, he is high above, uh, Loki 2.0 from Avengers. And again, very fittingly is... so considering how he soars, no mechanical wings necessary here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like, it's exactly as you said, I think we're on, we're going to be on a streak of great villains. And I think what makes him more unique to Loki is that pathos, is that code, is that little more depth of character. And again, I think the Loki we're going to get in Ragnarok is probably the best version of Loki. I would rate that character a six, but he is not a villain. As a character, <laughs> he's very high up. Um, and I think that shows growth of character. But in the way that we are scoring things, it does make sense to me that, yes, Loki is a top-tier villain. I've always said that Loki should be a top-tier villain. But I do not think he is the toppest tier, so to speak. 
All right, well, let's get into these post-credit rankings. Luckily, you guys get a bit of reprieve from Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Only two post-credit scenes. Let's start with uh, one of the bigger ones, which is the Vulture in Jail. We get the reappearance. We had a little bit of like a Mac Gargan appearance uh, in the weapons deal that goes awry, but he really starts coming into his Scorpion persona in jail. Like you said, Vulture decides to not reveal Spider-Man's identity, but... Also, to your point, could be possibly be setting up a, uh, a Sinister Six. How did you rate this particular uh, post credit scene? I gave this a 5.5. And um, it's actually the one thing that, you know, spoiler alert for what's come next, but it's the one thing that did not make this a perfect scored movie for me. Um, I loved it. I thought it was a great scene. I think it spoke to the Vulture really, really well. But it sets up the Sinister Six. It gets me really excited for that. But I'm also a little bit nervous for it. And I feel like that... Hmm. You know, it's less on this movie and more on just history. But, like, it gets me like, oh, man, this could be cool. But I'm like, oh, but it could also be really bad. So um, it, for that reason, I got a 5.5, but not the full 6. It doesn't – it isn't Sam Jackson showing up again promising the Avengers is coming, but it's pretty It's pretty high up there. Yeah, so that's the thing is I sort of, like, compared it to all the other uh, scenes that are definitely on the list. When I'm, when I'm comparing it to, like, uh, you know, Bucky going to Wakanda or, you know, uh, when Spidey gets his suit at the end of Civil War, or even, like, the reveal of the Maximoff twins in, in Winter Soldier. It goes slightly below that to me. So I put it at a four. It's about on, on par with me as, like, Howard the Duck. Obviously, this has more magnetic impact than Howard the Duck, but it's a fun little call-out for, for comic fans. Though so I guess it seems like they're going to also show up in Venom or, or in Morbius, I think. I think they're part of a jailbreak in Morbius. So, again, that's going to be a really interesting part of things uh but i think you and i are definitely uh, a lot higher on the captain america psa which again is like one of the least essential uh post-credit scenes but god it's so much fun and especially if this is supposed to be an homage to the john waters films of the 80s this is straight out of ferris bueller right this is steve rogers stepping out and being like go home it's over there's nothing left yeah and i think it, it does that so well like, it plays off the idea of, like, the post credit scene in a way, you know, I think you said it was the anti-Guardians, and it does feel that way, whereas Guardians <laughs> just had, like, one after the other. This one just had, like, ah, waiting all the way to the end, huh? Um, and it is very Ferris Bueller-esque. I think it's even stronger because, you know, the original Deadpool did literally did Ferris Bueller, and that makes perfect sense for that character. I absolutely right. think that's A-plus for that character and, 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 and him doing that. But I think this is better because it, it, it still fits into the world and, and fits into Captain America almost. So I thought it was really great to, to, to have that moment. And for me, that definitely has like a full six. Um, you know, it's weird to be like, yeah, the stupid one got the, the high marks, but like, it's just so great. And it's so perfect for what this movie is. So yeah, I, <laughs> and honestly, any Chris Evans as Captain America is going to get pretty good scores for me usually, except if it's just a trailer for the next movie. <laughs> Yeah, well, the thing is, so yeah, I, I, it's very much up there for me as well. I, I ended up uh, knocking it down to a 5.5 purely because of that stupid factor, which seems very antithetical to me. But like when I'm comparing it to the other sixes of like Nick Fury, you know, Thanos, the first Thanos, not the fine, I'll do it myself Thanos, and the shawarma seed, it's like, this is awesome. This is so much fun. It's a little less of like importance and pure seismic level of those. So it's going to get a tiny markdown. But you all uh, averaged out a 4.0 for Homecoming. Same score as me with the, uh, with the Vulture Jail scene. And for the Captain America PSA, averaged a little higher, a 4.3. So here's how it all shakes out. This is our top 10 so far. 
Iron Man with Nick Fury introducing the Avengers still comes in at number one. Number two is the Avengers with Thanos. Number three is the Avengers with Shwarma. Number four as a newcomer is the Captain America PSA, so it makes a, a big splash here uh, in the top five. Number five is Civil War with Bucky going to Wakanda. Number six is Spidey in Civil War. Number seven is our other homecoming post credit scene with the Vulture and Scorpion in jail. Number eight is the Maximoff twins from Winter Soldier. Number nine is Howard the Duck. And number ten is just the sum average of all five post credit scenes in Guardians of the Galaxy. So suffice to say, Kevin, at least with these first three re-rated categories homecoming rating pretty damn high across the board yeah and deservedly so in my opinion um again the movie is so well done and well executed um but it's got some contenders coming up i mean before we even go into that um you know we can hit the informal stone rankings for stan lee mm. um and the final battle um, admittedly as good as all the other stuff is, I don't think these are as high. I, I, I don't think the Stanley, uh, appearance is as high as some of the others we've seen. You know, he was one of the, uh, people sticking their heads out of the window to have that argument. I did, but I did love like grumpy, a yeah, grumpy Stanley of like, you know, basically shut, shut the car up, you damn kid. Like yeah. that just feels like Stanley personifying the get off my damn lawn is a lot of fun. And I also love him immediately turning on the charm and like that old woman's like, oh, how you doing? You know, I think his name is Gary or Greg or something. If, if we're talking about the Stanley stuff, I will admit that I think if you're looking at the top five, which right now are Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Age of Ultron, Ant-Man with Crazy Stupid Fine, uh, The Incredible Hulk with the Green Drink, and Tony Stank from Civil War. It's definitely all below that. I think my question to you is, if we're looking at, like, the Thor, Winter Soldier, Guardians 1 type of stuff, does it lie in there, in your opinion, or does it sit even further below that? I mean, I think it's, it lies in that area. I think that's that's an appropriate place to put it. So um, it'd probably be maybe tied with Thor or right below it, in my opinion. I think it is a fun scene. It is a great moment. But it is also, like, not as good as the five you listed just now. Yeah, and so I think, and I think again, it's it's top ten. That's, you know, a, a good portion of, a, of, you know, that's halfway of the movie so far. So I think it makes sense. Uh, it's a, a blink and you miss a thing, but it's Stanley being a grumpy old man, which is a lot of fun. So Homecoming is going to be number seven with our Stanley cameos. But yeah, I think the the lowest ranking we're probably going to give here is for the final battle because I think it's just again it's it's nothing for lack of a better term spectacular. Uh, I think we both liked other parts of action scenes from the movie uh, besides the final one. Like it's 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 certainly interesting and like you said, I think there's a lot of meaning behind what Peter does for Adrian Toomes. But I mean, uh, you guys put Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two at number nine. I would definitely put this below Guardians too personally yeah i think that's a fair point like it does go i think it's definitely lower than iron man 3 i think i think it might go below guardians 2 because of um the uh you know guardians 2 had the emotional aspect to it despite like, and, uh, and i'm mary poppins y'all yes. homecoming did not have an infamous line yeah they had a lot of great jokes in in the guardians volume 2 um i think the argument will become is it better than captain america first avenger and that's a tough one that is a tough one um I think I, I think I would put it above First Avenger, in my opinion. Um, because, again, I think, you know, they established Tombs as such a great villain, so that fight 
means a lot more than just him fighting, you know, Red Skull. So I think that does work. I think that's where I put it, which is pretty low comparatively for everything else we've given. But hey, you can't be you can't be perfect, I guess, unless you're Endgame, I suppose. <laughs> well, yeah, that's going to be number ten overall, right below Guardians two, right above Captain America: The First Avenger. And I agree. I think the choice that Peter makes is more enthralling to me than the death of Red Skull. And so I I think, you know, that ranking makes sense. Uh, Let's, you know, uh, is there anything else that you want to talk about with this film before we look ahead to more greatness to come, particularly from a comedic perspective? Um, Nothing that immediately comes to mind. I think we hit on almost all the points that I was hoping to hit on on this film and, you know, really just raving about it for a while. I just, this is such an interesting point in the Marvel Marvel Universe right now, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and it's so great. To me, I think it shows, I, I hinted at it earlier, but it just shows what these, what you can do with these characters when you have people who really, really, really care about them and really understand them um, making these films, you know, not to jab too much at other people, but... It does, like, seeing how well they handle Spider-Man gives me a lot of uh, excitement for a potentiality at Fantastic Four and the X-Men, especially. I mean, you know, I mentioned Spider-Man's not my favorite, um, you know, character and stuff in in the MCU or in the uh, Marvel comics. Uh, That is the X-Men. The X-Men are my favorite. Um, So it gets me excited to see what they could do with that. I just... I really hope they take a strategy closer to what I'm <laughs> what I described on Twitter versus what they're doing right now in the comics, which I'm not saying I like or dislike, but I just don't want that to be the, the, the version we see in on TV for so many reasons. But um, yeah, so I think that's the, that's a key thing here is like showing what 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 Marvel can do once they got their toys back. Yeah. And that's the thing is that there are so many comparisons from our listeners here, like an analogy of breathing. Ben Taub calls this refreshing. Jacob says it's a breath of fresh air. Phoebe Nugent says it's rejuvenating. And I think the analogy holds that I think when a lot of us walked into the theaters back in in 2017, we held our breaths. We're like, okay, this is Spidey being done for the third time. This is being done with the MCU, which had a great track record up to this point. But like, how much can we see the same stuff being trolled out over and over again? And then we let out a happy sigh when we saw Spider-Man Homecoming. And that's really what it is. It's like, it's just a breath. And it's it's a great breath. It's such a different breath from what's been done before between the tone, the characters, the themes. Like, I love this movie even more than I did upon first viewing with so much in retrospect. And so I'm, I'm so happy that I got the opportunity to, to relitigate all this with you, Kevin. But I go from a breath to a scream of exultation next week because... Everything is Super is getting into my personal favorite MCU movie up to this point, Thor Ragnarok. Oh, man, this is this is going to be a fun one. Yeah, I mean, like, at a certain extent, I don't think you're going to see a lot of difference in what we were <laughs> doing today versus what we're going to do with Thor Ragnarok. Slight changes here and there, I suppose. But, yeah, talk about... Man, oh, my gosh. It's so nuts because, like, you know, we'll get into it when we talk about it, but, like... Talk about two previous movies that were near the bottom, that are near the bottom, even mm-hmm. if we look at our scores, uh, to the third movie, which is quite possibly going to be at the top, near the top for sure. Holy crap. Talk about, uh, yeah, change of pace. I I love Ragnarok. It's easily one of my favorites. Probably not my favorite overall, but absolutely one of my favorites. It's in my original rankings, it's top five 
So, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's crazy because, again, if you speak it from, from a meta perspective, what we essentially said Homecoming did with Spider-Man is what Ragnarok does with Thor within the MCU. It essentially is a soft reboot in the middle of a franchise where they, you know, Taika Waititi says, yeah, Chris Hemsworth is funny. We should make Thor funny. And as a result, Thor might be my favorite MCU character. It's just the way that Crimson Hemsworth portrays him. Coupled with actually some pretty emotional beats, we go from the, the drips and dark drabs of, uh, you know, the dark world into the literal technicolor as seen on the poster of Ragnarok. We get freaking Jeff Goldblum as the Grandmaster, just Goldblooming it all around. We get a bit of Planet Hulk with some Zakar. We got... We got Mark Ruffalo back in the picture, too. Like you said, Loki takes a turn. We introduce Valkyrie. Like, there's so much incredible stuff coupled with a joke-a-minute style from another risk bringing in a guy who did What We Do in the Shadows to write an MCU movie. It's a crazy choice on paper, but to see what Taika Waititi was able to do to the MCU and with this character is is nothing short of amazing. So it's going to be an amazing thing to talk about. Uh, it's still TBD on whether it's going to be myself or Josh, but either way, there's going to be a lot of enthusiasm from this panel about Thor Ragnarok. But we, we want to hear from you as to whether uh, your enthusiasm is matched or possibly exceeded. Please send any feedback, comments, or questions you might have about Thor Ragnarok or about any movies coming down the pike. Uh, make sure you email super at postshowrecaps.com. You can also tweet at us at postshowrecaps. Josh is at Round Howard. I'm at a Mike Bloom type. Kevin is at Kev Mahadeo. Make sure you send your stone rankings in as well as we continue to compile, especially during this super strong streak of movies. Kevin, I know this was not your uh, your first time podcasting on PSR this week. As you mentioned before, I had the pleasure of also filling in for Josh on the Lovecraft Country podcast with you and Latanya Starks. Without going into, into too many spoilers, why do you think people should be watching Lovecraft Country right now, considering it's only one episode in? Um, people should definitely be watching this uh, for two reasons, I think. I think the the wonderful, creepy, surreal, amazing visual horrors that occur in this. If you like horror, this is definitely a, a show you need to be watching. Um, it is prestige HBO for sure. And also because of the genius creative team approaching a story about race that, while takes place in the 1960s, I think is extremely relevant, not just for today, but pretty much for any person of color at any point in American history um, and continues to this day. And so I think, you know, it's a really incredibly well done story so far with a lot of really cool mysteries that I'm just excited and thrilled to slowly uncover. Um, so everyone should definitely be watching this. It's like Watchmen. Everyone started talking about it. And then like later on, everyone's just like, oh man, I guess I should have been watching this show. And then you go back and watch it. This is this is going to be that. Like, don't miss the train. Hop on it now and just let's go for this ride together. Yeah, and you can check your phone while you're on top of the train as well if you're if you're dexterous enough. <laughs> so be sure to check that out. We have recaps going on PostureRecaps.com. Elsewhere on PostureRecaps, uh, you know, since Josh took a week off, I got to post a flashback episode for Down the Hash this week. Josh and I's very first Lost podcast together all the way back in 2014 was a fun little callback, so listen to that. And we launched a brand new rewatch podcast here on PostureRecaps. Ang in there, an Avatar The Last Airbender rewatch featuring Zach Muhammad and Jacob Redman, a full spoiler rewatch. Kevin, I know you're a big Avatar guy, so I'm, I'm happy to have two more guys aboard talking about a really, really fantastic show. Oh, for sure. It's one of my favorite series, full stop. Um, not just animated, but like just series. 
Uh, it's it's such a great show, so well done. I convinced Josh Wiggler to watch it recently, and he did, and we have both raved and raved about it. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to, to see these these uh, these guys covering uh, the show now for post show recaps and getting some more fans fangs fangs in there uh, and gang people. Uh, I was gonna uh, say we're getting back to vampires again with uh, Lovecraft Country with the fangs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you know, tying into Ragnarok, maybe maybe this means we need to do what we do in the shadows post show re- uh, post show recaps uh, episode. So let's see. <laughs> we'll see. So that's a that's a TBD. But thank you all so much for listening, uh, Kevin. Thank you so much for being a, a fantastic guy in the not chair uh, to talk through all great things with Spider Man and Homecoming. Everything is super is going to be back next week to talk about Thor Ragnarok, and hopefully no lands will be destroyed in the making. But for now, take care, everyone. Bye bye. <laughs>